The Triad Podcast Network is brought to you by Ashley McKenzie Sharp and the Sharp Mortgage Team, who are here to tell you that there are options for people in Winston-Salem ready to buy a home, but are hesitant because of interest rates. The Sharp Mortgage Team can help buyers in many ways, including using North Carolina down payment assistance and a program called the 2-1 Buy-Down. How does it work? The buyer pays a fee at closing to reduce the interest rate on the buyer's mortgage by 2% in year one and 1% in the second year. This temporarily lowers the buyer's monthly payment to make the home more affordable. Then in two years, the buyer can look to reduce the interest rate by refinancing the house. Now that so many homes are on the market, this is a fantastic way to negotiate with the seller so that you both win. The Sharp team is here to help buyers all around the triad purchase their next home. Get started with a simple email, ashley at sharploans.com, A-S-H-L-E-Y at S-H-A-R-P-E loans.com, ashley at sharploans.com. I'm at the Red House with Spencer K.M. Brown, author of Move Over Mountain, as well as his new book, Hold Fast, and more importantly, one of my oldest friends, actually. Yeah. Known you for, since we were little bitty kids. Yeah. Man, so, that was uh, playing basketball at the Y. You were really good. You pissed my brother off pretty good. I know that much uh, <laughs> back in the day. But yeah, we've uh, grown up in the same town. and Indeed. That's about it. You also, <clears throat> you and your brother both, very good at most things you do. But uh, I remember basketball, you were my first senses of rivals. Oh, like, yeah. It was just like, man, y'all were this, y'all were this mountain I couldn't move over. And uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, Colton, uh, my brother, he uh, he has a competitive sense that it just drives him in everything. I I don't really have that, but I like watching it in him. Mm-hmm. And he gets mad, especially when we played on the same team growing up. He would always get mad when I'm just smiling and having fun. I'm like, let's just have fun. He's like, no, this is this is life or death. We gotta we gotta beat Tyler Nail. We gotta beat his team. I'm like. He's our friend, man. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah. But, uh, no, that was, that was fun. Yeah. Well, as the years went on, you know, we, we kept refining each other. Um, it was basketball at first yep. and then you showed up as a drummer in this band and that was awesome. And then we found each other again later as artists and as adults. And yeah, it's just, we've, we've kind of weaved into each other's lives on and on. It's kind of, kind of cool how that's happened. Um, because honestly, I mean, the, the town we grew up in is pretty small. Not many artists in that way, and yet we've kept going back and forth, like you said, but through music at the old Foothills, uh, mm-hmm. that was there. That was always good. And then face paint, when you had that going, that was a lot of fun. That's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. I, I reached out to you because you were one of the few real writers in the area that I <laughs> knew, like people that were on the contemporary side of the craft and also like seriously devoted to literature, not just like... Uh, I mean, I admire, and we can, I guess this is a great way to jump in, but I really admire, uh, you know, the fact that you're taking on these long form projects, you mm-hmm. know, in a world where like, like with me, like, uh, sometimes I, in my own mind, sometimes I'm telling myself that albums, that long LPs are an uphill battle because of the way that industries and, and culture and stuff has changed. Uh, and so I admire people who still put out full length albums. And likewise, I admire the fact that you're putting out novels. Like, yeah. That's badass. Well, there's something about the long form. I think that just as an artist, you have to 
work your way up to it, I think. But I mean, honestly, the first thing I ever wrote was a really, really terrible murder mystery. <laughs> and it was a novel, and I, uh, I was 18, and I was, I was like, I want to I wanna sit down and write a novel. I was in a uh, creative writing course, and we had a final project. Uh, that was my very first one I was ever in that kind of got me going. And, uh, and he's like, well, you could do a couple short stories or some poems. And I said, I'm going to do going to do a damn novel. And uh, so I, I actually did. I sat down and wrote it. It wasn't very good, but just getting to the end made me realize like, wow, I can do that. And then obviously it grows over time. But um, yeah, my, my favorite albums are usually concept albums or long, long albums. Um, for some reason, there's something about them that just, if it's good enough in that way that it can take you away or take you to where they're trying to, to lead you. Um, mm. I like that. I like that a lot. What was so bad about your that novel? <laughs> was that your first novel, did you say? Well, yeah, it's not published. It's in a drawer back home. Yeah. Uh, but I keep everything. You know, I've, I've looked back over the years. It's, it's not terrible. It's just that it's, um, it's just someone who's you know still learning their chops and you trying different things. And that's kind of those early formative years are trying everything. You know, I, I think I tried to write a whole novel and like stream of conscious because I got really into James Joyce or any of that in um in Faulkner and I was like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna try that it's not as simple you know and so you gotta you learn your way but then you can learn different crafts and techniques um I was a drummer uh I loved just drums in general so anytime there was any type of music um I just wanted to learn everything about it you know so I played in a metal band i did some studio work for country musicians and jazz and all sorts of stuff. And then the bands I was in are usually, you know, the music I like kind of indie rock, that kind of stuff. But, um, but learning how to do everything in order to then create. So that was important when I was, I guess, starting to take writing seriously. Um, I wanted to try it all. So I tried all forms of poetry, all experimental writing. I didn't like a lot of it. I don't like necessarily writing mysteries or thrillers i like watching the movies but when Mm. it comes down to like what i actually enjoy sitting there writing what sticks on the page um i don't know it takes takes a different form in that way but just rambling now but (laughs) no no that's fine yeah um yeah i don't know there's uh i i love reading novels i love the novel form and where the characters take you and where the storyline takes you And, and, and it's tough i mean a lot of novels come out Every day, every month, they're published. You can find a billion at Barnes and Noble, but and they're probably very good. But I have a tough time even reading books. I'll start reading quite a few books, and then I'll just stop because it's not what I'm searching for. And usually, my reading or music is is part of a search. I would have to say um, most of the time, I'm very bad at just being open to new stuff. In a lot of ways, mm. it sounds bad. It's like, oh, you got to read this book. A, usually won't read it. Um, <laughs> I don't or, want to. Yeah. And it's like, it, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Uh, or listen to this band. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't want to, you know, uh, but eventually I'll kind of come to it on my own. And that's part of the, the excitement is finding an unknown something and letting it take you away. And usually that'll inspire me to go do something that's new that I've never done before, uh, in that way. But yeah. What, which, uh, which sort of love came first? Was it music or reading? Well, um, <laughs> growing up as a kid, I uh, 
I absolutely hated reading. Mm. Uh, my parents in their house have a gigantic library, um, just floor to ceiling of, in the living room, um, hundreds and thousands of books. My dad is a huge reader, was always reading. My mom, too. Um, my sister was a big reader. My grandmother was a uh, huge reader, but she was a uh, very good poet and writer. She was a poet laureate of uh, San Antonio, Texas in her later years. Hmm. Um, and, some, and my dad was a great writer, and my sister was a fantastic poet. But growing up, I just did not connect with reading. Um, I liked stories. I liked holding books, and I liked buying books as a kid, um, especially book fairs at schools or any, I would always want to buy all of them. Um, <laughs> and there was something about the pages and the words on the page that I really liked, but I never found myself like actually reading them, <laughs> yeah. which is weird, but, uh, there was that aesthetic there, but music, um, was also very big in our household and life. I mean, to this day, my dad will still walk around with his cell phone, just listening to music. It doesn't matter the, it could be Christmas and he's just walking around the house with, you know, his cell phone playing, <laughs> playing music or something, uh, or it's always on. My mom's always yelling at him to turn it off, but <laughs> music has like always been in our house, uh, everywhere. And so I, that was a pretty easy love to fall, fall into. Um, and drums, I don't know why. Um, I think there's something about the, uh, the backbone of it in music that I really liked. It's non, no real melody and I was wasn't interested my mom could play piano or you know flute and recorder and get a little guitar and all that kind of stuff and my brother was guitar lessons and uh, he's a really fantastic singer and so I kind of saw like all those parts are taken so what can I do that's my own genuine thing and I'd never known any drummers no one in my family could drum so I kind of just started doing it and yeah. um, I, th I think I went to <laughs> to Shannox Music and King when I was a kid, and I just bought a pair of drumsticks because I worked at my grandma's antique store, which was right next door. And, um, and I just started banging on pillows and doing that kind of thing. And then my mom said, well, he's kind of likes it, so maybe we should get him drum lessons. So I, it kind of took off there. But um, drum sets were expensive, mm -hmm. so I had to save up my money. And then my grandma actually helped me... Uh, pay for my very first drum set a rogers vintage rogers drum set that was cool oh classy yeah it was it was what uh gene krupa had so i uh, i like that but yeah. <clears throat> um uh yeah, yeah it's been so, a classic fellow yeah i like uh i don't know there's something about uh those aesthetics especially the old jazz guys and old blues guys yeah they were they were cool but i'm the same way know. i like there's something about the <clears throat> yeah there's something i like the I don't know what, but I've always had a fascination just looking at the old versions of stuff like vintage drums yeah, and being like, I don't know why, but there's something I like more about that look than modern looks yeah, or whatever. I think there's, with that, is there, there's an attention to uh, craftsmanship where mm. I, I feel like for a long time it just wasn't there for a while. Um, it's starting to come back, which is super, super great. But mm. I mean, even if you look at old books the pages are thick and like really just nice and they have a good feel and like they're just sturdy. I mean, they hold up where for a while all these kind of crap, crappily made books just came out and they're, they're just not good. You know, they're, I, I don't know. There's something about it. They're starting to come back now and do really cool stuff with them, which is nice. The same with albums. Like, um, 
for a while, like CDs would just like fall apart in your hand. Do you remember? Oh yeah. Those? Yeah. The, the plastic cases. Yeah, yeah. Like, but then and like the artwork, which is bad. I, I don't know. There's, there's something about the weight of things in your hands. And, uh, and when it came to drums, even I, I love that so much that I would buy cheap drums, strip them down of like all the wrapping or anything. And mm-hmm. then like restain them, paint them or do anything like that to them just to make them look better. And like, kind of be my own i was that was always important to me to make it my own in some way or another but um but yeah um yeah so with drums i i fell in love with that and i I, the way my brain works is that if i'm going to do something i need to do it completely in all of it i want it to be the very very best i could be and to take it to the limits of whatever I could see what I could do. I wasn't going to do it passively. I was going to be a drummer and I was going to play in bands and I was going to do it for the rest of my life in that way, you know? And so I took it very, very seriously. Um, and I practiced, I mean, every, every day for hours and hours. Uh, luckily I was homeschooled growing up and home, home alone a lot. So I could, all those rough years at the beginning, uh, you know, could get out of the way, but then, yeah, it just became something very special in my own. And, um, and I was actually really good at it. So yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. it made it a little bit easier, but, um, and the same with writing. Well, yeah, when I, I really came to writing in high school, um, and I'd love, I was writing songs for bands and stuff like that. And I, they, they were really just poems though. And I would say, oh, I got this, if you want to turn it into a song or anything like that. And, and that was cool. But then I moving from songwriting into poetry was cool and learning those forms. And then I found out that I was actually kind of good at writing, you know, I could put ideas together and imagery and all of that. And so I decided one day I was like, well, I I think I want to write. And everyone's like, you don't even read. What are you talking about? So like, you don't even like that. I was like, so I started reading, I'd read everything I could. And that hasn't stopped. That's, um, I just, after I found the love of stories and books in that way, it kind of overtook my life. And mm-hmm. now I have a nice library of my own and spend too much money on books. And, um, yeah, but I'm in this middle ground in that department. I <clears throat> love the idea of books. Um, <laughs> I love the artwork of books. I love how they look. Yeah. I love how they look on a shelf and I love the legacy that they seem to cultivate, but yeah. I have horrible eyes. I read very slowly. And uh, books are a really difficult challenge for me, and, and I just like, can't always commit to them in the way that I'd like to. And I've got a stack of books downstairs on my bookcase that's like, these are the ones I'm definitely very seriously eager to read. I mm-hmm. really want to read these. But I still have not really figured out how to, like, for me, it's not quite like cutting on a movie or listening to music or something. It's not something I just, like, lose myself in the enjoyment of the thing. Mm-hmm. Well, because those are those are passive though, passive yeah. art forms where books actually require something of you. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, you have to hold it, read it, make sense of the words, comprehend it, and then let your imagination, mind take over, and all. It's, it's a lot of work. You can't. It's hard to read in bed because you'll fall asleep. I mean, it's uh, you have to sit there and actually do it and find that enjoyment. But after, I'm an extremely slow reader, um, mm-hmm. really, really slow. But I found that if I read fast, I don't comprehend it. I don't take it in um, to where now, I mean, I've read a lot in my life, but I, I retain most of what I read. I can't memorize whole passages, but I could, you know, remember it. So I'd rather read one book a year that I remember 
than 50 books and not really know. Mm. My wife, uh, Amanda, she's a fast reader, and that's awesome. She is a lot smarter than I am, though, and so she retains everything. She doesn't matter. She's a genius in that way. But um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm a slow reader, and I've always felt bad. I was like, well, how am I ever going to read all the books I want to read You know, if I'm going this slow or whatever? So I started – maybe it's a bad way to, to read or whatever, but I'll, I'll read about, I don't know, like 10 books at one time. So I'll read a little bit of this one, put it down, and then next day I might want to read something else, so I'll pick that up. And Yeah, yeah. but you can still get through, I don't know, 60, 70 books a year doing it, doing that. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't read anything. <laughs> but I also get yeah. bored with books a lot, um, which is weird to say, but it's a lot of boring parts of books. And it's good. You want to get through it, but at the same time, it's like, ah. Oh. I just got to set this down and read something, you know, something different, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I have only done, I did two books at once one time and it was <clears throat> weird. It was, um, very different books. Yeah. It was, that's good though. I think. Yeah. I, it, they were as different as could be really. So I was reading 12 rules for life, which was this sort of like, these are the good things about society. Mm. And I was reading that and that's like a nonfiction and then I was also reading Ishmael at the same time, which is like undermining. Is that David Quinn? Yeah, uh, Daniel Quinn. Yeah, I think it's his yeah. name. He uh, he basically undermines all of society. Yeah, like acts like society is this fake thing, and it's a novel, you know, and it's a totally weird novel. So that was pretty cool because yeah. it was like this weird, like oh shit, like these are two almost like counter perspectives, kind of battling it out at the same time. I think, yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, you should be reading. I mean, for enjoyment and entertainment, that's that's always great. But then to read, to learn stuff, or to to grow in some way, I, to read such different stuff. I mean, that's. I mean, you can't read all the same, you know, Tom Clancy novels. I mean, you you could, I suppose, but they're all going to be exactly the, the same if you read ten of them at once. Um, usually, they're in series as well. But um, yeah, there's something about reading, you know, something nonfiction mixed with fiction, mixed with some poetry, mixed with essays. Mm -hmm. You get all these different forms. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, how, how do you listen to music? Do you usually, it's weird in this day and age, do you have like a, some bands that you just kind of listen to and then when that's over with their catalog, you move on to something? I definitely have uh, times where I'll like, there's the big difference is, am I listening to an album like through and through mm. or am I listening to sort of a compilation of music like either a playlist on Spotify or I have a bunch of mixed CDs that I made in the past nice. that yeah. like I just took a road trip and listened to a bunch of mixed CDs. I miss mixed CDs, man. That yeah, was, uh, man. <laughs> yeah. That was an art form in its own. Yeah. But definitely, I feel like the point you're making is like when I'm listening to an album with focus, that's a very different experience yeah. than when I'm listening to just like, okay, I'll just cut on Spotify mm -hmm. for a while. Yeah. And it, I, I don't know. It, it gets, um, I, I find myself personally, I, I, I'm a creature of habit in a lot of ways. Um, might not seem like it, but I'm, I'm an introverted person. And so I like to um, have things exactly how I've already ran through them in my brain, which is weird. But so I, I kind of look through the situation as all situation variables. I try to go through them to make sure that I know what's coming. So I'm not you know, caught blind or something like that. It's, it's a weird way that my brain works. So to be comforted by music and books, I'll often listen to the same things over and over or the, read the same books over and over. I love, I love doing that, but, um, I like to, I don't really branch out too much, um, to where some people will just put on, you know, 
I don't know. I'm jealous of other people being able to listen to music so widely and like it all. Mm. I can't. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Like, I've just never really liked rap or hip hop or R&B or anything. And only just now am I starting to appreciate Mac Miller. And that's like the first little little glimpse into that. And that's not even that that, yeah. <laughs> that genre really, but my wife has just played it over and over and it's slowly kind of wearing away at me. Um, country music took me so long to even like or enjoy. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it was Towns Van Zant who broke the broke the veil for me. And then now I I love uh love it all. So, Interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, I don't know how how that works out, but um I'm the opposite yeah. in that realm. Yeah. Like, Most I'm, people are, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I like, uh, li- I mean, and everybody says they like everything and I'm sure there's certain things I don't like, but, mm. uh, I really take, I, I take pride sometimes in, in having as eclectic of a taste as I can to the degree that's bearable. Yeah. Um, there's some shit out there that's just too wacky, but, but you should take pride in it. I mean, that's a, that's an awesome thing to be that to be like that. I don't know. I've just got I feel like an old curmudgeon sometimes, <laughs> but like not, not liking different, like, I don't know. Taylor Swift. I hate Taylor Swift. Well, I do. I, hate, do, I hope people like don't get upset I hate at Taylor that, Swift but too. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So like different, like if it doesn't have, um, it needs to have some kind of soul to it in that sense. Um, and there's, uh, this is the biggest controversy in our household. I really don't like Michael Jackson. Okay. I don't like his music. He's fine. I wow. get. I, I understand his uh, appeal to people, and that you might like that kind of music. And I can appreciate him as an artist. I don't like his music, and I don't like listening <laughs> to his music. But sorry if that makes a lot of people out there upset. As, but know. I've been through it before. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I never was like, "Oh, come on, Thriller, that's a great song." I'm like, I mean, no, it's it's not, but. But I'm glad you like it, and yeah. I don't have to like it, so <laughs> I don't know. That's it. But I also like a lot of music that other people probably don't like. Um, sometimes my wife will call it sad bastard music, but, you know, I, I like those kind of mellow, quiet, I don't know. I'm sure. a pretty quiet person, but, um, yeah. So Michael that's, Jackson, that's a, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think he has one of the greatest voices music has ever seen. Uh, but, you know, like, I do, sometimes I laugh because... Like, so one time, if anybody steals this idea, it's fine. It's fair to steal at this point. But one time I had this idea for a YouTube channel that would just um, kind of interpret songs very literally Hmm. based on the lyrics. And I picked out some, like, Michael Jackson songs. And when you, like, really get literal with the lyrics, (laughs) sometimes they don't make a ton of sense. No, no, not at all. Uh, That's hilarious. That's a great idea. Yeah, Yeah, like... I, I was. It was going to be kind of obnoxious, but yeah, just pretty much act out a song, like put two people in a room and act out the song literally, nice. and see how it would unfold. And like I did that in my mind with "Dirty <laughs> Diana" by Michael Jackson. It makes it makes very little sense. Yeah. It's like this this guy, like he's like, I'm a musician. I am uh, like <laughs> at this concert, and there's this lady there that always likes to seduce musicians. So this is. So I know about her. <laughs> and after, it's like, what if you had to pitch your songs to record companies, literally like a TV like a show? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like, would get through. Ever. Like, so yeah. get this. This guy's playing a music concert, right? He's, and then I'll say it in this way. <laughs> There's That's this funny. gal named Dirty Diana that everyone knows about. Yeah. And uh, 
he he's like playing a show and then Diana walks up and she's like this is what's so weird about it is like she she walks up and she's like hey I want to hang out with you after the show or something and he's like I know how you are like I know that <laughs> I know you're just trying to seduce me he's like but okay we can do that but I have to I have to consider the fact that my girlfriend is waiting on me to come home <laughs> so then they go to like a hotel room this is what's so wacky about it is he runs he gets into a hotel room with dirty diana she walks up to him and she says now it's time for the sexual stuff and he's like he's like wait hold that thought i must run to the phone now and call my girlfriend and he runs to the phone and he dials his girlfriend and he's like Hey, I forgot my key. Leave the door unlocked so I can get into the house later. And then Diana interrupts him while he's on the phone with his girlfriend and says, he's not coming home. He's sleeping with me. <laughs> and he's like, oh, rats, dirty Diana. How could you have done this to me? See, I'm like, uh, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, just it. that's why Michael Jackson's not very good. That's my point right now. <laughs> Like, why did you call your girl right then? Uh, Jesus funny. Christ. Oh, man. This is the 80s. You could have used a payphone. I don't... Anyway. You could do whatever you want, I guess, but... <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah, no, you can't You can't do that, but... <laughs> you can't do that, man. You can't do that. But uh, yeah, so, I'm, I, I mean, you ain't got to like Michael Jackson. But I used to love it when my friends would be in the car with me, and I'd have a mixed CD, and it would go from, like, Brad Paisley... To Petey Pablo, to Slipknot, to like, you know, <laughs> yeah. David Phelps. It yeah. was just like a ridiculous mix of musicians on one CD. And people would be like, Jesus, I've never heard a CD this confused. <laughs> and you're sitting like, there yeah. driving like, yeah, yeah, that's my CD. <laughs> yeah, there used to, that used to be like a thing of pride. Like, I got a mix CD. I just made it. Everyone check it out. And it's like, <laughs> how good of a mix? Uh, mine were always pretty bad because it was kind of like the same. It was basically just an album of a band. I usually, because um, mm. I'm like, oh, I, I like this Modest Mouse song. Oh, I also like this Modest Mouse. It's like, this is just a Modest Mouse CD, you know. Modest but, Mouse compilation. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But, but then, yeah, you could break it up and, you know, do, do some cool stuff. My brother, he had the worst taste in music. He really liked uh, techno for a while. Really? <laughs> yeah, so he would just like add a techno song, and then, what was another? Um, <laughs> he was, yeah, he was like, it would be techno song, then it would be, uh, it's back when um, Kings of Leon were popular, and he really liked them, so he put them on, and then a killer song, then another like DJ Tiesto song, is like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what are you doing, man? Yeah, he was, he was funny. Man, but, like electronic music that's always it's like that's different from a lot of genres because it's always shifting into new territory like i forget that techno even existed yeah i I know very little about it but i remember when i was coming up there was like trance music that was a thing that some of the underground kids were into and then ever since then it's taken all these other things i don't even know about like what like e like there's something with letters uh, EDM. Happened, EDM that happens at festivals and shit. Yeah. I don't even know what electronic Dubstep. music is about. Yeah, no, I never... It's never my thing. You know, yeah. It's too loud and the flashing lights always... I don't know. It's going to have a seizure or something. But yeah. yeah. That was no always kidding. weird. I yeah. do love hip-hop, though. And, yeah. like, metal. You know baby metal? No. That's one of the weirder <laughs> things that I like. It's a it's a band, like a... I think, like, a Korean band or something, or maybe babies. Japanese. It's, like, three girls... And they look like innocent pop stars, but it's like kind of dark. Yeah. That's interesting. It's weird. 
we played one time. I was in a metal band and we played with a, you said trance, but uh, it was like a trance electronic death metal band. Hmm. And it would be like really peaceful, like soundscapes. And then someone just screaming over it. And then like really bad, heavy drums suddenly behind it. And then have you ever seen like a shreds video? That old guy. Okay. That was, that was, it was an old internet thing, but uh, huh. it's this guy used to silence the music of a band like playing a live concert, like U2 or something. And then whenever it showed like someone, he would just play like the guitars would be like, plink, 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 plink. And then the drums, do, 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 and he like mesh it together. It was hilarious, but that's kind of what the band sounded like. They were, they were not very good at all, but. I will definitely um, look for those videos. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're hilarious. Um, but. So speaking of, so yeah. writing, we kind of went on a music thing, mm. but as you were talking about your appreciation for like, who are some writers that you think have really, uh, when you think of their voice as writers, who are some that you really admire? Who are some that you think are like, oh, that's, those are people who really inspired me to try to find my voice or something? So in a sense, like, um, like if you're reading, if someone reads a passage of it, you would know who that is. Almost like if you heard like a voice is yeah. of like a band or something, you like, you know, like Flea Foxes, they have a sound, like you just know, like... Like, is that what you mean, kind of? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, Flannery O'Connor is a huge one for me. Um, I mean, her stories just, when I found him, I, f- I found him kind of late in life. I was, was in my 20s, but I, I guess it's not too late. <laughs> but as a writer, uh, usually most people, like, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But, uh, yeah, when I found her from a one of my old professors, um, Cheryl Monks, she's a great writer, but um, I was in a short fiction course with her. She introduced me to Flannery O'Connor. I was like, how have I never read this? As a Catholic and a Southerner myself mm. and kind of that Gothic fiction in that way, I loved it. And I had never read Flannery O'Connor. I couldn't believe it. And so um, she has a way, just a grace on the page that is fantastic. Um, I'd encourage anyone to go read Flannery O'Connor. But she's really, really good. And so to try to not imitate her style or her voice, but to, um, to try to achieve that kind of grace on the page and authenticity in that way. Um, that was kind of eye opening. That was cool. Um, Walker Percy is another one. I love, love his stuff. Um, I think, you know, Faulkner, whenever, whenever you're reading him, he's so bizarre and out there. He's one of those guys that just could do, he's on that genius level. I would say, um, the Shakespeare in the world, like he just on a completely different plane. Um, it's hard to understand. You have to read him several times. And even then I don't think it makes sense, uh, half the time, but he's just brilliant. Um, so to, to, I don't know, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but, uh, um, oh, that's cool. At the same time, that voice, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a number of authors out there and writers, um, that you read and you almost have to stop reading. Cause I, me personally, I get so inspired that I want to just go and write my own thing and, yeah. and not imitate, not do what they're doing or copy or anything, but just that you're driven to suddenly create. Um, that's the beauty of creativity. When I, as a drummer, when I heard Keith moon, even now, whenever a who song comes on, I almost want to turn it off and just go set up my drums again and start playing. Cause it's like, Oh man, I, I love that. But, um, yeah, uh, Walker Percy, he's, um, a huge influence, especially his 
I don't know. There's just um, some authors just have that kind of authority and they're able to, from this first sentence of anything, um, just take you over and you're immersed in that world and into, into the story and the page and all the way through. Uh, and usually like a lot of stories that I end up liking have a lot of uh, more existential issues going on in the book. So it's not, it's usually character driven. I, I love characters, not really into plot so much, uh, you mm. know, finding out. I do like murder mystery. I love Sherlock Holmes um, mysteries, but, uh, but at the same time, when I'm looking for a book to whisk me away in that sense, um, there's certain things I'm after. I think I'm, I'm wanting to, I'm asking questions secretly in my own head and some authors will guide you on, because they're asking the same questions. And so they're kind of building a boat off of their boat and hoping to reach it. Um, mm. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do in my own writing is I'm not sure if anyone else cares or even knows or wants to know, but I, there's questions that I'm concerned with in that way that I don't know how I feel about most things until I sit down and start writing them um, and start figuring them out. And that's the, that's the beauty of it. I, I, I feel like I get into my own world <laughs> with uh, books and writing and it's not programmatic, but it's as if I'm kind of existing in my own little bubble and I'm gathering in all this firewood, all this clay, so to speak, that's going to foster some new project or something else. Um, I don't know what it is usually at the start, but then it starts to kind of make itself known. And then as I'm writing, especially that first draft, uh, there's an author, his name is uh, David Joy. He's brilliant, great great southern author uh, and he described it as that initial first draft is the clay that you're putting on a potter's wheel and you're out there digging up the clay and that's the first draft it's just rough and you're just getting it on the page and so part of that digging process is for me at least is reading and it's not any kind of programmatic reading schedule or anything it's reading a lot of poetry a lot of a lot of essays a lot of um, different weird novels and that all kind of stews there for a while. And then in this, in the, at the same time, your subconscious is just churning bird mine is at least in, um, and then something comes out. But, um, when you, when I approach the page, I try to, to say, I, I want to make it as authentic as possible as those voices of those authors that I had just said. Um, because that's, um, that's where the the joy of it is. And I, I don't always capture it. I, you know, you're, you want to try to do better than what you've ever done before when you're, I don't know, writing a song or writing a story, but, um, and you never do, you never can. And that's, I think that's good, but it keeps you driving after it. And so to sit down without anything else kind of influencing you, you have all of these influences, but that's not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. They're, they're there as kind of support, but, and then you become your own voice on the page. And that's, um, I never knew what that meant. A lot of teachers, editors, and publishers, they say, well, you know, I, I don't connect with the voice here. I don't, I was like, what, what the hell is voice, you know? Um, and I don't know, I, everyone might have a different answer for what voice is on the page, but I think the voice is where you as the author are almost out of it. Mm. And the work speaks for itself in that way where Hemingway, Flannery O'Connor, all those people got to his place where, you know, it's their work. They're famous. They're big, whatever. But on the page, you are so, 
you're not saying every sentence, this is Flannery O'Connor writing this. You're just immersed into it. And it's that lifting of the veil, so to speak, um, where you're just the conduit and you're just simply putting it on the page and you're not forcing it in that way. That was a big, long tangent there. (laughs) But speaking of voices, let's talk about these books. Hmm. Tell me about why move over mountain camp, like why it happened. Well, uh, I wrote it first draft, uh, while right before my wife and I got married. Um, and she had just gotten a job working at the ICU. It was her first job. Um, and it was, it was pretty rough time. Um, because it was a whole, she had just gotten out of, uh, out of PA school and was full-time working 12 hour shifts on just a terrible unit. It's, you know, it's the ICU of the hospital. And so, um, she had a lot of just dark days and just really sad moments, you know? And so just kind of listening, hearing that, and that was just kind of stewing in my subconscious. But at the same time I was writing just different stuff. And, um, and I had this idea or this image popped into my head of memory. And that sounds weird, but an image of memory, (laughs) but, um, so the main character in that story, uh, John, he, his wife is, dying in, in a coma in, in the hospital, but he's afraid of not remembering her. And so he wants to remember everything about his life in order to remember everything about her and to remember because he wants to hold on to something that you can't necessarily hold on to. And this interesting thing I read that kind of spurred that on was when you remember something, you are remembering, remembering it if that makes sense. Hmm. So the more times you remember something in your brain, it's almost like a copy of it. And I I don't know if this is true or not. I'm sure someone out there could say, well, that's, that's but I like that idea. And that was interesting to me so that the more you start to try to recall good times, especially if it's sad, then you're in this struggle of, well, I don't want to suddenly remember it because I don't want to lose it. I don't want to lose that first initial memory. So it becomes this weird, thing in your brain that you're starting to overthink and all this. So the character and how that book came about is that I had this image um, of this guy wanting to remember and be close to his wife in the last time that he couldn't possibly be. And so then it kind of gets into who he is as a person, their relationship and his whole life and philosophies and what he's seen and done and how that plays into accepting the present moment um and how that comes to you can't control your life in that sense um now that's all on the surface i mean it doesn't make much sense (laughs) but that's kind of my thought process is um accepting that you you know that bad things happen that suffering exists in life in that no matter how much you try to control even that inner side and trying to stay safe from it. It's, it's that letting go. That's the most important part in the end. Um, in order to fully grieve, to fully, um, live and to be alive. And Mm -hmm. you can't live just in your memory. You can't live constantly in the past. You can't also live constantly in the future. It's uh, it's that balance of them. Um, 
And so by going back in his memories and thoughts and all of that, he's trying to avoid what's happening right before him, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Um, So yeah, that's kind of how that came about. My wife refuses to read it. And I with understanding because she kind of, you know, lived that uh, in the hospital and saw people like that. And so, um, but I wanted to make sense of it. I wanted to make sense of, you know, pain and suffering. It's something very universal. And yeah, um, I explored it. And, you know, a lot of people will ask me or family or they're like, man, you must be so sad writing about sad things. I'm like, no, I'm a, I'm a very happy person. But to, to explore deeper topics like that, you just, and I don't know, it, it, it interests me. You don't have to be sad to write something sad. You don't have to be happy. Often it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And yeah, so it's not literal in that way, but it's just an exploration of grief and sorrow and relationships and memory. What do we do with all these memories? What do we do as we age and yeah, conduct yourself in that way? Timing is everything in life. And I'm certainly hoping that my timing is right to deliver this message to you from the Ginther Group, a triad real estate team with a vast local knowledge. What's the question you often ask yourself when it comes to buying or selling a home? Is this the right time? Buyer's market, seller's market, low interest rates, high interest rates, doesn't matter. The answer can always be yes. You just have to strategize appropriately. And we provided many of those guides in our podcast with Blake Ginther and his team right here on this same feed. But here's a new one offered by the Ginther Group. Let's say you want to sell, but your home condition isn't ideal for a competitive marketplace. They've got a program that can help called Renovate Now, Pay Later. That's right. If your home is a little rough around the edges, you can make the improvements now and pay at closing when you sell. Contact the Ginther Group at 336-283-8689 or visit theginthergroup.com to learn more and see if it's an option for you. You can also talk to them about other helpful resources like their first-time homebuyer seminar or a real estate wealth management consultation. Whatever you need, contact them today and like me, you can become a Ginther Group client for life. I know what you mean, I think. Uh, And I think the way that you just described that, that kind of there's commonality there with how I approach songwriting and why. Mm -hmm. And it's not always something I'm conscious of in real time. It's just like something that sort of happens, but you use the phrase making sense of, and I think that is often what writing at the heart is about in a way. It's like kind of unraveling some kind of problem that our mind is fixated on and dealing with it. So so it sounds like through this character, John, I think you said his name was, mm-hmm. you were unraveling kind of some of the problems you were seeing in, in your life and you were kind of stepping into his shoes and unraveling yeah. some of those. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if it was that, that autobiographical of like things I was seeing. I was just like, it's like little glimpses, like little moments that this is going on in someone that I see my wife, right. for instance. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. And it, it's almost not that I didn't care about things and, you know, what's going on in her life, but it also, as a writer, that was a seed for something that could make a good story. Exactly, um, yeah. And, but the more I thought about it, and this is it's a weird fact in my life, but um, no one really close to me has ever died, which is odd. And so the older I get, I'm like, man, it's about to all come falling down, you know? And so I think <laughs> it sounds weird, but uh, death is kind of constantly in my head. And I think it's, you're 
aware of it a lot, um, mm-hmm. especially as a Catholic. Uh, a lot of our prayers deal with death and dying, and um, and that's important. I think you should you shouldn't ignore death. You shouldn't ignore the bad things in life or the sorrows. But through fiction, through music, through any of that, through art, I've gotten through a lot of rough times in my life. But also, it helps to un- make to make sense of it honestly, and to say, I don't have the answer, but. I'm going to follow this path to where it goes. And it's only a novel. It's not going to change the world or change anyone's life, but maybe it'll further that conversation or further the, those thoughts and offer something. I, I don't know. Um, well, I, I like um, all that except for the part where, cause I do think it's possible for a novel to change not only somebody's life, but potentially the world yeah. in some small way. I'd agree with that. Okay. All right. Ever send my, my comment. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, 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 they do have capability of, of of altering you for the rest of your life after you before and after you've read something or done something. Certainly, yeah, you can change. Um, I mean, I read The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, and that absolutely changed the course yeah. of my life. Like, it changed who I was in my <clears throat> in my deepest being. Honestly, yeah, I read that uh, while I was stocking stocking produce at the grocery store. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that was interesting. I'll always remember that because I read it. Um, I had read it before, but then I read it again while I was stocking apples and I just had the book there while I was doing my work. And, um, yeah, it was funny. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that book was my first experience understanding, I think the, like the heart, like the foundations of Eastern philosophy hmm. concerning balance and stuff between sort of two powers. And, uh, and it changed my brain, man. And anyway, so, so I, I I like that I like what you're up to and I I like um and, and I like giving it the power at least trying to let it have the power to to be like you know maybe this is a maybe this is as significant as it could be um, but regardless of that I like the way that you're talking about I don't know like the process of exploring these really big things I wonder why death is the thing that you mentioned like. I, I relate to that. I don't know if everyone does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like. There's part of me that assumes that everybody is as fixated on death, but I don't get that sense most of the time. I feel like it's muted for a lot of people. Yeah. And for creative people, it's often at the forefront. Yeah, and I, you know, that's uh, interesting. You say that, but I mean, for to sit down and something to take hold to be a whole novel or a whole project for me, it has to be something of something big. Um, tried to write a, I mean, I have a whole stack of half done projects and millions of them, but they, there was something lacking in them that wouldn't push me over that edge that I got bored with that. It wasn't, wasn't doing something. And so when something takes hold and puts hooks in your heart and so to speak, and into your whole body, and it's just like, I have to follow this. I have to figure out what's going on. And honestly, I mean, death is one of those things that it's an ongoing question. It's an ongoing trying to make sense of it. You know, and and that's uh, it's a tough thing uh, out in the world. A lot of people have different answers or different things, and and that's fine. But I think as an individual, not to obsess over death or to be afraid of it by any means, but to accept it as a part of living. I've, as a kid, even I would just always, I've just always seen it as a balance um, of life and death, and just kind of it's part of it. Um, and I mean, as a Catholic, I, I, I believe in heaven. I do believe in all of that. And so what is our purpose here? What is all of that? That comes into play a lot in, in my thinking. But 
I try not to put all of that there. I try to follow the characters and what they're feeling and what they're thinking. But yeah, I think death is, um, it's an interesting, interesting <laughs> topic, but have um, you been concerned with death? Like, do you know how young you were when you started to notice that this was something you were, you had a relationship with this idea? Um, I don't know if, it, yeah, I, for as long as I can remember. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. There's something to know that you are uh, mortal and to know that you're going to die. That's a very heavy topic that we're on to now. But, uh, but at the same time, to know that and to say, okay, yeah, yeah I understand that. Um, absolutely. I've just always had that. And I think a major factor in that is um, having grown up Catholic and having religion in my life and, and knowing that, but also having my own relationship with, with uh, nature, with the, my surroundings and who I am as a person. I, you know, I've spent a lot of my early years very introspective and contemplative in that way. And so that thought comes up. I'm alive now and I will be dead. And so what is the purpose of my life? How do I conduct myself while I'm here? Why do I take care of myself? Why do I want to do anything? You know, what's the purpose? And you can get to that. You could get to that very dark nihilistic, well, what's the purpose in anything? It's like, and then you ask that question. And I don't know, I've always been interested by those things and those different outlooks. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I think it's important to not obsess over it, not to, you know, not to take it like so weird, I suppose, and like like death or honor it or like be, I, I don't know, it's weird, but just to recognize it as a, as a part of being alive. Um, yeah. Just as happiness is part of it and so is sorrow. You know, there's this balance, there's all of these things in there. Um, I got really into Zen philosophy. I, I don't like the really, but I, I like the aesthetics of, Zen stories, uh, and Zen in kind of, I, I found that through Thomas Merton, the writer, if you know him, um, and kind of this Eastern thought. And that kind of plays a big role in most of my writing. Um, this idea of balance of emptying yourself of being present, especially when it's difficult to be present, especially in a world where it's no one wants to be present most of the time. No one wants to think about heavy issues, which I, I understand. I don't want to think about heavy issues all the time. I don't want to, I mean, yeah, no one wants to, but also to recognize them as they come and to not my, my family. I, I love them. They have a very hard time being serious mm. because all of their jobs and all of their life is only serious stuff. And so when we all get together, it's hard to have like real deep, meaningful conversations um, because you will, usually there's a lot of alcohol in my family, so that makes it difficult, mm -hmm. but also things get super real, super fast and no one wants to process anything. That's been a struggle. So to, to process and to get through things. Yeah. Um, and so writing for me has been somewhat of that, you know, a lot of the stuff I don't publish that stays in the drawer is just getting things out, you know, and, and doing that. And that's necessary. But, um, so yeah, that, that's a, that's a, darker book, but I think it is hopeful in the end. Um, I don't think it's a sad book. Yeah. A lot of people who have read it have told me, wow, that's one of the saddest books I've ever read. I'm like, wow, how do, how do you think it's sad? Like there, 
there's this topic of death in it. And so if you just look at that only and death is the end and death is boom, you're, you're gone blast out of the universe or whatever. Yeah. I, I could see it being very, very bleak, very dark. However, the fact that life goes on and that you're, I, I don't know. I don't want to get too into, <laughs> into different stuff, but um, I, I think it's a very beautiful book. Yeah. I wanted to write something beautiful and that's my goal as an artist is to try to capture beauty. And I, f- I fail most of the time, but to strive after it, that's my, my goal. Just to capture um, beauty. Yeah. And then in, in the new book, I also a dark, <laughs> heavy book at the start, but um, the landscape plays a huge role in that in hold fast. Um, and they, they live on the lake of the shore of Lake Superior in Minnesota. And, it's winter, so there's not really much beauty around you. There's bleak, it's dark, it's freezing cold. And so how do you find beauty when everything's so dark? How do you find hope in such a hopeless world, so to speak? Um, that, that's kind of what I was searching after. That was the question. And usually it's kind of also in both books and most of what I write is questions of the heart the character's heart in conflict with itself. Um, I think Faulkner said that, and I really took that. I love that statement of the heart in conflict with itself, of you in conflict with your surroundings, your present moment, of something going on, and how do you get through it, and what do you do? Um, yeah, that's always been interesting. Okay, before we dive into that book further. Okay. You said something that I wanted to, almost forgot that I wanted to say. Uh, um, it's interesting what you said about. I know we just got off the death thing and we kind of got out of the darkness. Oh no, that's fine. You can you can go. Right I just back. I wanted to mention like it sounded like our our religious experiences were different in one way in particular mm. was like uh, mine in Protestant Christianity was like this message of defying death. This message of like you're not actually gonna die because mm. you're because you have religion or whatever, but. It sounded like you didn't. It sounded like you had a different vocabulary for that, and like you, you knew you would die. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I see what you mean. Like you know you're, what I mean? you're talking about, um, in a sense, like hope in the the resurrection, so that even though you're dead, you're not really dead because you're living on in heaven with Jesus, and that kind of idea is that would. Yeah, yeah. yeah not even. Yeah, not like the not like the second coming resurrection, but yeah, like as soon as you die, you're in heaven, and so it was almost like this trick, like. When you die, you'll be better off anyway, kind of thing. Yeah, well, and and I think I I, I do I I do believe that you know souls go to heaven in that sense, but at the same time, I, I don't think you can just skip right past the dying part. <laughs> I, I mean, I, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do like the yeah, I, I I like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, because even as a Christian, you have to look at Jesus who died, perhaps the worst death possible. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's one mystic actually who had visions of Jesus and said that anything that could possibly have happened to a person, so to speak, happened to him. So you're talking about brutally treated, um, perhaps even, you know, yeah, we'll go, won't get it, but yeah, just like just the worst possible death. Yeah. And he died that way. 
you can't skip. <laughs> I mean, you, you have to take that into consideration. Yeah. Especially if you believe that he's God and he's our savior and all that. And you have to say death is a part of this human existence. It's a part of that. It's a, especially in Christianity, it's a wager of, you know, it's part of sin. And so I always liked, not like, that's a weird word, but um, I always acknowledged that. And I said, yeah, that's, that has to happen. It does. It's very sad for the rest of us to see someone die. And that's also part of being alive. That yeah. grief, that mourning, that sorrow. Um, those are big, big things and they're important things though. And every aspect of emotion in that way is very important. And you, and you should have those times of, of grief and mourning. I mean, I feel like even back in society, used to be normal to publicly mourn and grieve. Like everyone knew that this family was in mourning, you know, uh, whether they're wearing black or whatever in, um, in England or something like that. But I feel like we cover it up now. It's not a funeral. It's a celebration of life. It's this, and, and those are important things. I, I really think that you should celebrate someone's life, but you should also, it's a time to consider your own mortality at the same, in the same breath, if yeah. that makes sense. It sounds very bleak. I mean, everyone's going to be like, a, I don't know. but uh, It doesn't because of what you're saying about what you think death is. I mean, it sounds just stoic in a way. Okay. To me. Well, good. That's not, that makes me the same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, I, I think that's, um, you, you have to, you have to stare into that abyss. And even though it stares back in that sense, you have to, that's part of the courage to be alive is to stare back at it, stare back at sorrow and say, I accept it. You know, yep. there's this old Zen story or whatever, but, um, this phrase in, um, Siddhartha, actually it's, uh, I accept your, your gift of, you know, depression or sorrow, but, or sorry, thank you for your gift of sorrow or depression put in whatever, but I don't accept it in that sense. It's because it's already present for him in this one way. That's how I've interpreted some of those stories. Um, but it's also choosing, I'm not going to let this sorrow overtake me. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to live in it, move around in it, and then I'm going to be done with it yeah. and carry on in that way. And that's what move over mountain is, in a sense, is I'm going to bask in it for a second, let it have its say, let it do its thing, and naturally move right on out of it. You know, um, I think that's that's important in life. If you stunt yourself from experiencing different aspects of that, um, whether it's numbing yourself with drugs, alcohol, anything like that, you're not experiencing it. You're experiencing it in a whole different manner. And, um, so that kind of consciousness in that way is, I don't know, it's important. Yeah. 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 I also like another thing you said, you know, kind of capturing, You've been referring to these Zen stories, and they mm. do. They have a certain <clears throat> character to them, a certain way they function that is very specific, those kind of proverbs of of Zen. And I'm trying to remember two of them that stuck with me. One of them was they're, they're, sometimes there's a humor to them. Sometimes there's something bold in them. Um, one of them I remember was there was a teacher who would – nap during the day do you know this one he had all these young students he would nap during the day though and when his students would like call him out for it he would uh he would say i was i was visiting the gods or whatever i was visiting with the gods i wasn't sleeping uh but they the kids took note of this and they 
started sneaking off during the middle of the day and started napping. And one day their teacher found them napping. Uh, and they said, he said, what are you doing sleeping in the middle of the day? And they said, we weren't sleeping. We were visiting the <laughs> gods. And uh, while we were there, we asked them if they knew our teacher. And they said they never met him. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, lo- I love those little, I don't know, there's little little pearls of stuff there. That's always great. Um, yeah. My actual favorite one is shorter. I don't do it justice telling it the way I do, but so there was this <laughs> lady monk doing her lady monk shit. And <laughs> That's good. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to start. Yeah. And uh, someone, pa- she, someone passed her a note in her belongings that said something like, to the effect of like, I, I'm attracted to you. I would like to talk to you and embrace you. Will you meet me at the fountain tonight or whatever? And she walked up to a, the room in front of everyone and she held up the note and said whoever gave me this note thank you for your note now if you want to embrace me do it here in front of everyone and i was like oh fuck (laughs) that's good yeah (laughs) i like that yeah so let's talk about hold fast all right you gave me a little bit of the the premise the setting of this book but let me ask you why this book happened um, I had this image, um, this one started with kind of a weird image, but this guy waking up and looking out his window and seeing his dad, um, kind of melting snow and ice with a flamethrower and just the glow on the kid's face. Like you could almost see it through a window and the glow on his face. And he's looking at his dad, like he's lost his mind. Like what? what is going on. Mm. And that was it. Um, and that was the first thing I wrote down. I wrote a couple pages and then let it, then I didn't come back. I was like, wow, that's really stupid. Um, but then I, the more I thought about, it, I was like, well, why does a dad have a flamethrower? Like, why is he melting snow with that? And why does the son care? And who are these people? And so the more I started to my subconscious started to move over it into mullet and it started to come out and I just started writing it down. Um, and these little glimpses and little scenes and this book was weird in the, in the writing of it. Um, move over mountain. I wrote before, right before we got married and before we had our son. And so I'd have all these long hours of the day, um, to write and sit there and just, it was the best, you know, I was, out of college and I was working, um, for a newspaper, just writing articles and different stuff. And so I had a lot of free time just throughout the day. And so I would, I would write pretty, pretty much like five, six hours a day. I would just sit there. And so it came out in this long, I was able to like really think and go on walks. I don't know. It was just like that picturesque kind of writer's life for a little while. Um, which is awesome. It was great. In this book, I was working and then we had just had our son and life just was completely different. And I was almost angry. I was like, Oh, where's all my writing time? I need, I need time to create and write. I'm like, man, get over that. And so I just kind of just assumed I wouldn't write very much or it would be little poems or stuff like that. And so often while I was rocking my son to sleep or he was asleep in my arms, I would have like images and like, I would be able to write for, 
maybe 15 minutes at a time, if that. And so I'd be able to write, you know, a page or two. And so it started coming out, not in this long, sprawling narrative, but in these little scenes, in these little short moments. Hmm. And so just as far as the craft of it goes, that was always really interesting. And I was like, I kind of like how this is moving um, and the style of it. The other thing that was tough, um, but that came out in a really weird way, and I didn't really recognize it until the, my editor uh, pointed it out, and then another writer friend. And there, the narratives in it are one is uh, third person omniscient uh, for the dad, so it's or sorry, third person close, so it's only the dad from a third person perspective. Um, where the son in the book is first person. Mm. And so to jump back and forth between the perspectives, I don't know why I wrote it like that, but it just came out that way. And people say, oh, you're in control, you can do whatever. I'm like, well, I can't, because after a certain point of writing, um, I I would say I'm not in control much anymore. It's just you're following following the trail. and But it took on this whole different, feel of it um and it became an even deeper meaning to these characters and these people um and so that kid standing at the window watching his dad melt snow became just melded and it just started flowing from there so to speak um the story is a it's about a father and son living on the shores of lake superior the dad is older um and recently lost his wife kind of in an accident and the son uh he was a, an Olympic hopeful uh, for rowing, and he was on the team and all that, but he had an accident himself and couldn't row anymore, couldn't do anything. And so he's back home kind of a year after his accident, year after his mom's death, and they're somewhat hibernating in their house, not really doing much, wallowing in their own bullshit, so to speak. Um, and they're both looking at each other angry that why are they just wallowing when they're both doing the same thing? And so... It's kind of this difficult relationship between father and son, between kind of that universal, between parents and kids um, is the way it came out. I wasn't really conscious of that, but it's how the characters played out in that way. And um, so one, they're living together in the same house, same life, but at the same time, they're complete opposites. And um, a major theme for me that was of interest at the same time was um, this idea between kind of a romantic outlook on the world and a more technical mm-hmm. outlook. Um, so people, you know, I would say romantics tend to be anti-technology, anti-plans, anti-that, and more of a flowing, whatever, um, yeah. romantic. Where the opposite side, they kind of hate each other because one is like, no, it needs to be like this. You need to have order. It needs to be mapped out and all this. And the other one's, you know, whatever. So these are these two kind of characters. Um, and so they're also in conflict in that way. Um, but a big idea was in order to control your life, you have to control every little moment of it for the dad. He becomes obsessed with that. Um, and that was interesting because I've known people like that and I felt like that in my own life. And really the, the true happiness in a personality would be the balance of the two, I think. Um, Anyway, sorry, that's a lot of rambling there. But yeah, um, so that's a story. And they get through grief together. Um, and then I wanted 
I got really uh, interested in boat building. Mm. I don't know why, but um, the the dad in the story, um, I don't know if it's a spoiler or not, but he decides that everything in his life is going pretty bad. Everything's gone to hell, so he's got to live out a childhood dream and build a boat and row across Lake Superior um, when the winter thaws and all that kind of stuff. And so that's kind of his last heroic attempt and he's gonna he's gonna die out there mm. um yeah so that was all of these different images kind of started popping up and then the narrative took it's, a hold it's really interesting to me that it that it started with that image and i know what that feels like and i didn't know i didn't know that you experienced that and so mm. that's <clears throat> very interesting to me because i think i think sometimes i can listen to songs and I can find the phrase that I'm like, I bet that's the seed for the whole song right there. Yeah. That's the most interesting piece. And I bet everything else came from that. And I know that with my own songs. And sometimes those songs start exactly the way that you just described, like mm-hmm. where it's this picture in my mind that's sort of like, why does, what, like, what would make that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, so I guess I just didn't, re- I, I never, thought about it i guess it makes sense that we would have that in common and that probably different creators have that in common yeah but i just never i never heard you talk about that before like the starting point being like that yeah it's uh i don't know it, I, I can't plot i've tried to you know plot stories or novels and it's just becomes death after a while because you're almost a slave to to the plot that you originally put out there but then things change you know as you're going um i could only imagine in songwriting you're looking for chord structures or any of that and you have an idea but that just doesn't fit with the words or this or that and so things evolve and change and being as a creator i think you have to be open to it becoming a completely different story completely different idea than what you had set out to do um and that i mean this one absolutely did it was going to be this really weird cool i don't know eclectic kind of book uh i don't know and it became this really powerful like family story in a sense this kind of family saga and character driven but it's um i wanted i wanted a lot of space in between things almost like little vignettes or poems that were going on in the story and i wanted i didn't want a a reader to after this is after it's written and the structure of it but um i wanted the reader to experience how i wrote it so to speak um, and I wrote it with long breaks in between writing each page, just about, um, it all depended if my son woke up and <laughs> took the pen from me or something. But, um, but I wanted the reader to, ex- you know, to experience that silence and the distance between what's going on in the story, but then not to just go on to the next thing, go on to the next and just sit there for a second and think, um, I try to write in layers and so the first layer is just the story and you can read it pretty simply. Um, and then the, the next deeper layer is I have my own ideas for pretty much my, my use of language and my imagery and all of that. Um, and that's for me, so to speak, but I think other people will, could read it and have their own ideas and own feelings and own connections and all of that. And I think as a part of reading or listening to music to, experience that and to listen to, oh, that's a beautiful passage. Just sit in it for a second, you know, or whatever. I just wanted to give the opportunity. So it's kind of broken up in that way. Yeah. For the space between moments, you know. 
like a, a good album sometimes will have you know kind of a song dies off and then there's like a long pause or just like a little trickling melody in between like a connection of two songs or something i've always liked that kind of breathing space in between things um i don't know yeah it's always cool the triad podcast network is sponsored by jennifer johnson owner of three magnolias financial advisors and a local certified financial planner who helps people plan for big financial goals such as retirement or college especially now navigating markets is challenging particularly for those gearing up for retirement, young professionals, business owners, or retirees. Am I saving enough for retirement? As a business owner, do I need a workplace retirement plan to attract and retain key employees? Am I using the right individual investment strategies? Personally, I had some of those questions. Plus, how do I save for my kid's college education? So I went and got local independent advice from Jennifer and her team at Three Magnolias Financial Advisors. They're located in Winston-Salem, and you can get started like I did with a complimentary, no-obligation consultation right here in the triad. Just call 336-701-1600 or email jennifer at the number 3-magnolias.com, jennifer at 3-magnolias.com. And be sure to catch Jennifer's podcast covering all sorts of financial tips, trends, and strategies right here on this same feed with the Triad Podcast Network. Securities offered through Satara Advisor Networks, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Three Magnolias Financial Advisors. Three Magnolias Financial Advisors and Satara Advisor Networks are not affiliated. Satara is under separate ownership from any other named entity. Yeah, it's fun to play with mediums like that and yeah. see, like, to what degree because it's hard to predict and sometimes you know you want to cult you want to curate sort of an experience for people as a creator yeah and sometimes you you obviously are constantly running the risk of somebody just totally experiencing it a totally different way and Mm -hmm. that's a part of it too but yeah i mean to what degree you can like make that experience like take full ownership of that experience and kind of use your creativity in the way that's just beyond the craft but also the experience of the craft it's pretty fun yeah well, and I, I think, I mean, it goes back, creators trying to do that. Faulkner even, his original idea for uh, Sound of the Fury was like color-coded for characters, and each character would be in different colors and all of that. Mm. Um, have you ever read the book House of Leaves? Mm-mm. Great book. Uh, I think it's Mark Dan's, I can't pronounce his last name. Mark Z. Danielowitz, something like that. House of Leaves is the name of the book, but one of the craziest most incredible books i've ever read completely terrifying scary beautifully poetic and awesome at the same time it's a great book but the pages are indifferent you have to like turn the page it's color-coded it's like um, all sorts of weird narratives because it's almost like going down a rabbit hole and each time you get to a different it's like a book within a book and it, yeah. it's mind blowing. Man, um, I, I remember it's crazy, but a friend of mine showed me a book like that. I wonder if it was that book, but it was like, it was the first time I'd ever seen somebody mess with formatting in mm-hmm. a book. And I was like, Whoa, like, yeah. this is a totally different, this is a different level of th- trying to be creative. Yeah. And I, I'm not, you know, I admire that. I'm not smart enough to do something like that by any means, but, to, to bring a kind of an experience to to a medium, I, I'm always open to that. I, I, I like that idea. It keeps it, I don't know, keeps the wheels turning and you want to see what you can do, you know, so. There's, you know, it's, I admire it. I admire it. It's, it's just like any other medium, like with film. You watch a, uh, what's his name? Damn it. 
you watch uh, the guy that made uh, Night of Cups or uh, uh, Tree of Life. Oh, uh, yeah, I saw Tree of Life. I, I can't think of who. Man, what is his damn name? Uh, that's frustrating. But anyway, yeah. his films, you know, I feel like though, though he's on a different level of just standing out among other filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's this question of whether or not all of that creativity, it's clear that you watch that movie and it's creativity that you're experiencing. It's this, this freeness that you're experiencing. Yeah. It's so unbound that sometimes you question whether it's utility, you, you, if there's enough utility in it to be useful to the, to the audience. I know what you mean. Yeah. I think in film, it's a little easier with, with music. I see this a lot. Like people will get so lost in their creativity that they sacrifice the utility for the, the, uh, the, the listener. I heard it once. I heard it best said like this, mm-hmm. that art is often this battle between utility and creativity. And that like, if something is too creative, it's not useful. And if something is too utilitarian, it's not interesting enough. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's just kind of a fight between those two forces. Same as the balance we've been talking about yeah. throughout the conversation. And I think I think that's pretty right. I think like some things can get too creative. But regardless of that, when people can manage to do something like refresh a format like books, I mean, mm-hmm. that's who would think to do that? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I fully agree with you. I think there is the, you need that balance because if every book came out like his, like house of leaves, it wouldn't be its own thing anymore. But that's the thing is that he's authentic when he came and approached it. And that was his own and he made it his own. And that's something that's what I admire in artists and all of that, whether it's you're writing murder mysteries or you're making pop music, you have to admire, I, I do admire Michael Jackson because he's authentic in what he's doing in that sense. You know, um, but imitations uh, of things, that's where the a problem can get in. And yeah. as a creator, I think you can get bogged down by trying to create like that, you know? Um, yeah, and we're both kind of creatures of habit, I think, in certain ways. And, like, I don't really push the boundaries too hard within music or with the things that I write. And yeah. I'm with you in that regard. I like, And I like a traditional approach. I like classic stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like I I often wonder sometimes if more contemporary, more avant-garde artists look at what I do and don't relate to it because it's so, because I'm really a pretty traditional musician, you know, Mm -hmm. but I like that world. And I think that that's useful. And I actually think in a modern day we, we find ourselves in, it's almost more surprising to, to approach these traditional art forms in a traditional way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I love Hemingway. I like his straightforward style. A lot of the time I, I enjoy it, but then you can get into, you know, crazy sentence structure with different, um, different authors. And, and that's also beautiful, you know, but to, and so to take it all in, to read as widely, to listen to as much music as you can. I think that's, I mean, Stephen King has a mantra of just saying, read as much as you possibly can and write as much as you possibly can. That's the, that's the trick. If you want to paint mosaics, go look at a ton, paint a ton, and then just find your, your path through it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and make it, uh, yeah, that's that kind of authenticity. We were talking, sorry, this is going to branch out, but um, we mentioned a little bit about working in jobs and masculinity in that way. But I think that's also part of that is that you have to be authentically you, you have to show that grace under pressure 
every day, you know, and th- that's about being, you know, a father and a husband. It's important for me and I struggle with it. I mean, that's, that's tough to be, to, you know, <laughs> to try to be good all the time and to try to not good in that, but to do your best all the time. It gets, life gets tiring. Um, yeah. Creating gets tiring. Uh, and so just to be calm and to breathe and to approach it saying, I'm just going to do my thing, you know, I'm not trying to copy and not trying to write this or make that or whatever, but, and not worrying about the outcomes, you know? Um, yeah, that's the best moments of it. Yeah, man. hundred percent with you. Um, have you ever, have you ever read a super sad, true love story? Mm-mm. That's a cool format that pushes that line a little bit. I'd be curious. I love that book. Uh, and it's, who's that by, do you know? I don't, I don't, Superset. Okay. I don't remember names that well. Um, anyway, I don't remember his name, but it's a cool book. Uh, he, it's, it's from two perspectives, like a, a man and a woman. Oh, cool. Okay. And the man is all written like from the perspective, like he's writing in his diary, mm. but in the one in the, for, when he's in the woman's perspective, it's all like text messages and emails between people. Oh, and that's gotcha. like the okay. two ways that he tells the story. And it's, just fucking cool. Yeah, to that's like, cool to experience both of them. That's also, awesome. the world yeah. he creates is is really interesting. But uh, anyway, that was just a side note. I wanted to make sure I mentioned. When you're making an album, I've always wondered: Are you like world building in that sense? Are you building mm. a, a narrative throughout it, or do you write individual songs and say, "Well, these kind of sound damn like they would go together"? It depends. Yeah, uh, depends on the project. I think of, I think of writing music. Um, I feel like what I do is more close to writing. I like to write collections of songs. Hmm. And so I think of it more like maybe you would call it a book of poetry. Maybe it would be more like a novel. It's kind of like this big long theme instead of just, and, and it is like in singular little snippets Yeah, and those snippets have a personality of their own, but it's uh it's not just like eh i wrote i wrote like 40 songs i'll just pick like 10 of them that's what a lot of bands do but i really like i write like an album nice um and with that being said some of those projects like i have one right now that's unreleased called the black cabin and it's all from when i was doing the log cabin thing oh cool okay and it's like kind of ghostly there's like ghost stories in it and it's like very traditional and it's like, it's not, none of it is me. None of it is like, these are my experiences. It's all kind of imagination yeah. land. And in that project, it was a world of certain That's cool. styles. Uh, so it was a world of certain, I should say, that consisted of certain details. And I think that that was true with the album uh, Under Evergreens, which is released mm-hmm. and, and some other ones. But then there's like other ones that are a lot more autobiographical. I think like uh, Feathers is kind of that, and uh, and the first album, Winter to Winter, is kind of that. Life Lessons and Devil are probably more like that world, you know. So it's it's usually one or the other. Yeah. Okay. Kind of thing. I like that. I've always I don't know albums that are like it's almost like storytelling, like the old traditionals or anything like that. It's that's always been interesting to me. Do you, I mean, I, I, as a singer songwriter, it must, you must get it a lot, but it's like, Oh, 
this happened to you. Like, uh-huh. This is your thing. You know, as a writer, the same thing happens to me. That's yeah. a huge, big struggle in my life. Is like this. Why are you writing about yourself? Why are you doing that? I'm like, I'm not writing. A, I mean, yes, I have life experiences that are similar, but you know, a lot of things, but it's, um, maybe only other writers or creatives could under really understand <laughs> that. Um, cause otherwise it looks like you're just writing about yourself autobiographically and some writers do. And that's, that's fine. Yeah. Which um, is fine. Yeah. And that's, that's, I just, t- I just don't. And so the characters themes sometimes will come up, um, that are, you know, close to home or like seem similar, but I use that as kind of a jumping off point. So it's really the things that are autobiographical in the book. You would never know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, that are truly autobiographical, like a true experience or something. But the rest of it, that's the beauty of it is that you're creating it. You're creating a fictional world that is a mirror or close to reality, close yeah. to existence in order to shed light on experiences on, on the world or a character or whatever. Um, yes, yeah. I know what you mean. And it's, it's confusing, man, because so many people, talk about the value of art as being the truth. And you know, I've talked about the truth before Hmm. there's, we mean different things when we talk about it. You know, if I wrote a song that was like water freezes at 32 (laughs) degrees that nobody would be like, God, that song is so true. Like it's It's the true song right there, which it, you know, it's a, I would be singing a fact, but nobody would listen to that and be like, God, that's so fucking true. But if I say something like, you know, uh, something poetic about like a relationship about like the way that I feel about something or another people can perceive that as super true without knowing whether or not it was something that happened in my life. Yeah. And I think that's part of the musician and part of the, the, um, the artist archetype or something is to just assume like this person is a vessel for all their experiences and they share it with us and we all relate to it and it's all true in one sense. And Mm -hmm. I just, I don't think people often know what they mean by that. What, like, do they, do they think, I'm not saying that judgmentally either. I'm, I'm not sure I always know what I mean by that either. I'm, I'm, I'm in it too. Yeah. But I'm just saying, you know, like people that the example being the, the example I gave being probably the best context for that. It's just like, they don't mean that, it literally happened a lot of the time, even if they think that's what they actually mean or yeah. something. Yeah, I know what you... Uh, well, it comes down to that utility thing again. Um, where, uh, when it comes to creating and all of that, it can become... have too much utility, you know? And so then you lose the art form. Then you're writing instruction manuals. Exactly. Or, you know, it's like that interpretation of the Michael Jackson song. <laughs> right. <laughs> becomes so literal that you lose the, the beauty of it. And right. I think that's part of why we go to movies and listen to music is that you want to experience that beauty, you know? Um, and they, yeah, that's a big, it's a big deal. Um, so to find that balance, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's frustrating sometimes when, uh, when they're like, well, you're just writing about your own life. I remember that happening. I'm like, it's, it's a universal time. I mean, but it's yeah. also this weird specific things that people get hung up on. Sometimes it's like, I, there's I also to do with, yeah. The question you kind of that's revealed in that is about something like the autobiographical stuff or whatever. Hmm. I I remember like I guess I confronted that question a long time ago. So uh, there's this artist I like. His name's Noah Gunderson. He's a, a songwriter. Yeah, 
And when he was younger, he wrote this song called Selfish Art. And I think it's like the cringiest thing I've ever heard. Uh, one of the cringiest things I've ever heard. And it's like this pathetic, self-loathing thing. that Actually, Father John Misty did another... Uh, he, he expressed it in a different way with this song about... Um, this song where he basically stated that all art was kind of stupid because it uses oil and latex and all these natural resources that are just self-indulgent and that we keep doing it and stuff. Of course, he later then like went on some rant at some music festival about how, you know, art was pointless because of politics or something like that. And like, there's this odd, there's this odd sentiment, this spirit that people can sometimes get possessed by that like, that assumes that art is is self-indulgent and evil mm. and wasteful and and egotistical which i think is at the at the point at the root of what we're talking about there's this question of like what does it mean to be autobiographical with art like is it ego driven is it self self-serving or self-celebratory and i don't think it is i remember a long time ago i heard someone say that the study of through art, like the study of one person's life, the study of one human is the study of all humanity. And that's like always what I've thought about what I'm doing. Why is it worth it to like try to tell my story and capture it or capture my ideas is because it's like, I'm, I'm one of our species. Mm -hmm. Like I'm experiencing shit among the rest of us. You're spot on. I mean, I I agree with that. Um, I've often wondered if, do I, am I wasting my, I'm, wasting my time sitting there just writing for hours and dreaming up worlds that don't even exist and people that don't exist. That's the other thing. I mean, is it a waste of time? And I've never felt that it's been wasted time personally, but it's also like what, I mean, Shakespeare said is what you were saying, but that we might contribute a verse, you know, in this crazy world that we can, Oh, sorry. That's uh, not Shakespeare. That's uh, Walt Whitman. Hmm. Um, and to contribute a verse that that always stuck with me. I love that to contribute song of, a verse. Yeah, song of myself. I think it is. Um, and the the mad play or mad spin of it all is going on. Um, I'm bad at paraphrasing it, but that you can offer something to the table. Offer just a little bit of your humanity to it. Whether it's fixing cars, doing that. I would equate you know a mechanic's job. Yes, that has utility. That's good. But there's an art form to a lot of a lot of that, I would say carpentry, for instance, it's utility, you know, has utility, but it's also beautiful books. I think are beautiful, but they also have utility for more intellectual or whatever that side of your life, the emotional side of it, Yeah, which is also, I don't think you can ignore. You can't only be hard nose and like only look at, um, temporal things in that way your whole life. And that's part, I mean, a big question I had in the book was what is a better way to live is a better way to live, not dreaming, so to speak, um, and to constantly be present to only do stuff that, uh, has value to, I don't know, to, to look at life in that, uh, in that way from a technical temporal stance, or is it better to be a romantic? Is it better to dream and to be more easygoing to not really care if you're, house is dirty or your windows or if your cars has the oil changed or whatever, or is it all of it? You know, is it, yes, take care of your things, but also it's okay to 
watch movies or, you know, it's a, uh, you can get into a whole, whole another podcast about that. No, I'm sure. sure. But, um, but I get it. And yeah, some people do <clears throat> live that way and you observe those people like, um, who comes to mind is like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins. It's like, they pretty much voice this belief that the most important thing is the material world is like a materialist mm-hmm. perspective. And that like a materialist sense of truth is what we have to bet on. And then there's all these other people who, you know, express this other thing. And, you know, I, I played with the materialist view or whatever. And like, I understand its utility there. It does serve a purpose, but yeah, I mean, I think like most people would probably agree, which does matter. It does. It's not a democracy, but it does matter. Like, I think a lot of people don't feel fulfilled by a materialistic materialist perspective of the world. It's just like, Oh, I'm just a, I'm just a sack of blood that will cease to exist. Like that's kind of yeah. Blank. That's bleak. Yeah, I think. and and I think um, materialism in that way. It's uh, we should all know, proven time and again, that buying stuff will never make you happy. The more stuff you have, generally, the your happiness just plummets. Mm-hmm. And it's not. And then it's not even in not having stuff that you're happier, but you have. Usually, I would say it leads to more contemplative nature and a outlook on life, and yeah. that's the difference. I would say in making it is how you deal with your relationships, how you conduct yourself, how do you think, and all that. Um, and I think that's important, and I think material substances uh, block you from connecting with that. Well, I mean, even beyond that, so yeah. like that's a part of materialism. And then the materialist oh. of like a like a the scientific perspective, like Sam Harris, is like is basically just the idea that from what I from what I gather, I'd say the materialist perspective is that they only they only believe that they believe that they only believe in the existence of things that can be considered tangible or measurable. And so uh there's holes in that already because there are real, there are very real concepts that we deal with regularly that aren't material. But sure. um, when it comes to stuff like the soul, spirit, religion, mm-hmm. the, pretty much the 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 value of stories, as we've been talking about, all that shit is kind of out the window. I think for a materialistic perspective gotcha. or a materialist's okay. perspective, hmm. which is connected also to the idea or the assumption that your life is best the value of your life is best expressed through material goods. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's interesting. I don't, I don't agree with it. Like, I, yeah, I don't like it, Obviously, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. like it. I don't like It'd it. It'd be weird if I was a materialist, uh, story, storyteller. But, yeah. I mean, what would be uh, the point? Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, and I'm, I don't know what is the point of, of art. And I think that's a big, great question. Well, know, that but, was, yeah. you know, did you ever listen to any of those debates between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson? Um, no, I, I'll just say no, but it was playing in the background. So I heard bits and pieces, but, um, they yeah. did it many times, sometimes live, sometimes on their podcasts and they're really intense. And I remember Sam Harris once offering a, uh, he basically was like talking about the religious stories. He was like, I can do this with anything. I can, I can go into, I could, I could go into a a bookstore and grab a menu like a a Hawaiian menu for Hawaiian dishes. And Hmm. I could like read all of these sort of meanings 
into each use of each ingredient and it doesn't make it real like he has this problem it seems like with the non-realness of Hmm. it and uh you know there's something to that i get it there are people in the world who think maybe that that stories are too real or maybe that like even religious stories are too real or more real than they are but that goes back to our our whole problem or our whole question of like what it the specific meaning of what we mean by real or truth or whatever what people mean by that if we're talking about a material realness that's probably a different realness than what you and i've talked about in the past about like an an abstracted sense of truth like a truth that's true across the board whether Mm -hmm. it's material or not you know yeah, I mean, when you you mentioned like real life in a book or a movie can be too real, mm-hmm. and people don't like stuff. It, it won't sell. I mean, honestly, um, if it's too real, or if it's so real, then sometimes that'll hit. But then most of the time, we want that buffer zone between yeah. reality and that. That um, usually absurdity is where that enters. Mm. Um, after something real, something generally absurd usually happens in a lot of things I've I've noticed, but. It's because it softens the blow of the reality Interesting. a lot of the time. Comedy is often that way. Comedy is, we laugh because it's real, because it is oftentimes very true statements, you know? Um, yeah, and, and in fiction, I, I, I like writing real contemporary fiction. I'm not very good at um, historical fiction or science fiction, anything like that, but I like real life. I like real people, and I, I like humanity. I like people and like watching and like wondering why they move, why they do what they do, why I do what I do. And that kind of drives that. And so I, I, I'd say that's truth and that's real and that's important. I mean, yeah. to understand ourselves um, or try to, but when I discovered historic fiction, it made me angry. <laughs> I was like, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, it's weird. Uh, but it's, yeah, see, that's, I've never been a fan of historical fiction in that way. Um, but a lot of people love it. It's it's pretty cool. Um, it's just not for me. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I would like to visit this idea of, of story. I mean, like, why stories? Why? What, what is your take on why the hell we keep doing this? We've done it forever. Mm-hmm. We keep doing it. And now, and like even contempor- in the contemporary arts, it, it seems like with songwriting, with what you do, with what movies are, it all comes back to storytelling and what is that all about, do you think? Hmm. First and maybe foremost is we need to, it depends on the story, obviously, but at the same time, why do we keep telling stories? I would say is a lot of it is both entertainment and seeking knowledge, some form or fashion. Um, but also understanding each other and why, honestly, why we do the things we do. So is there any value to a very violent book? It's a great question. David Joy, the author, he wrote one book that was, the violence just gets surmounted with each page. It's just, by the end of it, you're just like, you can't even read it. It's just, Mm -hmm. and so he was asked like, why are you writing such a violent book? He's like, what did you think about it by the end? Did people get what they deserved in the end? Didn't you want to see that? And, the whole point of it is to say, oh, man, I did. I was rooting for that guy to get ripped apart. Why was I doing that? What is this? And so then you have to start looking at it. And stories often 
entertainment uh, somewhat sneakily lead us to thinking about things we would not otherwise think about. So stories become important in that way. Um, at least for me, uh, that's my take on it, I suppose. Um, and to have empathy for another human being, to read a story about an experience that's not your own, you might not connect with it, but then suddenly you can understand it. And then you can approach the world and understand something maybe a little bit more. That would be the hope, I think, um, to understand the universe, God. I mean, all, all, all of that. Stories can guide us to that. But also can take us away and take us from the present moment and just bring us joy. And mm-hmm. that's a huge part of it as well. Two questions. One, when you say that stories can guide us to that, I mean, how how do you explain that? Like, why do they do that? Or how? Or do they do that better than... You know, like, like, like if you think, like, okay, if you take me as a, as a person and somebody wants to say, I have, I've written an argument here. I've written an argument to try to persuade you toward the idea of goodness. And then you have a different person who says, I have a story I'd like to tell you that led me to goodness and maybe it'll lead you there too. Why do you suspect that? I mean, I, I hear that and I'm more like, I want to hear the story. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to hear the persuasion. I want to hear the story. But why? I wonder why that is. I, mean, I think it's innate in us to be concerned for others. I think we want to know about that person. We are very interested in other people and other things and how it relates to us in a lot of ways. That's my own little way of thinking but I, I really do I think reality TV we just for some reason want to know what what they're doing what's going on in there we're interested in gossip I mean yeah gossip all sorts of different stuff like that but we want to hear that story because we want to know to what end what happened along your journey maybe something similar has happened to me perhaps but it might not always be so bringing it back to ourselves but we just are concerned and how did he get from here to here you know um, that's, it's, it's curiosity, I, I would say by the end of it. Um, and stories can, I mean, it's like my son, if you tell him, don't touch the, the stove, he's going to look at you and he's going to say, <laughs> I'll kick you right out of this house. I'll touch the stove. <laughs> he's funny, but, um, he says that, oh, uh, he says the craziest stuff. He's hilarious. He's three. And, um, yeah, he says, I'm going to, yeah, that could go on. And, uh, but he's yeah, hilarious. But if you tell him a story, about it and say one time I was cooking dinner and the water is boiling and I touch the stove, blah, blah, blah. And then he'll listen. He really will. And it's just a cute little thing. But also the biggest lessons I've learned in my life is usually not from someone telling me to do something, yeah, but by hearing someone else's experience about it. If someone says, don't do that, especially when you're a teenager or something, your mom says, don't go out there at night or whatever. You're like, screw you. I'm going to go do whatever I want. But if they're Tell you a story, hey, when I was your age, I got into a bad car accident. That's why I'm saying be safe. You're like, ah, I see. That's okay. true. And so there's something about a story, something about a something involved within that. I, I'm not sure I could pinpoint it. I'm not no, I can't smart either, enough. But, but I, I think that there's something about the narrative that we need to understand and then 
you can go out into the wilderness yourself and then apply that to that usually. Yeah, man, there's a, there's a spot on the road where I grew up that I, I can't pull up to without the thought popping in my head. My mom had a car wreck here. I just can't Yeah, like it's ingrained. Yeah. Uh, and it's because, because I know the story of her getting a car wreck there. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think also this just popped in my head, but I, I think it's very true, but stories have a way of connecting us to one another and not making us feel so isolated. Um, and we, I love that. I love not to feel so isolated all the time, but to hear someone else's similar struggles or see characters go through similar things or to say similar things or whatever. It's like, ah, I've done that. I've been there. And you suddenly can, it's like you're, you're growing at the same time that you're learning and it's like, oh, this is, that's okay. I can, I can get past it too. Like this, and it sounds cheesy, but at the same time, I think that's real. I think, I think you can, um, hearing a super sad album. Why, why do we listen to that? Why do we listen to dark music or any of that? It's like you're experiencing something with them that might relate to you, might not, but then it can bring you out of it Yeah. at the end of it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I feel like we could, as we always have, we've known each other for years. We can mm. talk for a very long time. Uh, I guess I'll wrap it up. But so what should people know about where to buy your book? Well, if it didn't scare anyone off with all the <laughs> death talk, but uh, no, they can, uh, wherever books are sold. Uh, yeah. Uh, Hold Fast came out last month and um, yeah, I'd appreciate if you took a look or get it from your local library. Nice. Yeah. Can they just like go to Barnes and Noble and buy it? Uh, I'm not sure how any of that works. Maybe, or they could order it from them. Um, cool. Amazon online, indie, indie bound, um, go to your indie bookseller. I, I would say that support yeah. the little guy. Hell yeah. Yeah. Little tiny guys. Little, little tiny guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, man, I'm glad we finally got you on here and I expect it won't be the last time. So we'll, well thank uh, you for having me. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, that was a good conversation. So. I appreciate it. I think it was. So thank you for coming and doing it for real. My pleasure, man. All right. Well, till next time. Mm